JB Aviat is CTO and co-founder at Screen. Prior to this, JB worked at Apple as a reverse engineer, pen tester, and developer. JB joins us to discuss the new application security report that Screen has released. We review what the report contains, key takeaways and conclusions, and we even consider which framework language is the most secure, according to the data in the report. We hope you enjoy this conversation with JB Aviat. You cannot hack yourself secure. Everyone wants to focus on the offensive side of the equation. The challenge is that developers get bored with hacking broken pieces of code after a while. Sure, it's a shiny, cool new thing in the beginning, but how about one year later? At Security Journey, we focus on long-term, sustainable security culture with the developers as defenders. Our approach integrates experimentation together with learning. We believe that developers need hands-on experience, but not at the expense of fundamental knowledge. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo or schedule a demo. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and co-host of the podcast. I'm also joined by Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Chris. Yeah, Robert Hurlbut here, uh, Threat Modeling Architect. So we're going to talk today about a new report that has come out upon the world of application security. And today we're joined by JB from Screen, where he is the CTO. Uh, JB, we always jump right in for our listeners with the question about your security origin story. Because what we found is our listeners, they want to know where everybody comes from. They want to hear this story. So if you could share with us, how did you get into the world of application security? Hello, folks. Good question. So I've been passionate about IT security since I'm like a teenager. Um, And every time I had a chance to to build a project or something at school, uh, it was always related to IT security. Um, I did a lot of uh, mathematical uh, studies, so I did a lot of things on uh, RSA, factorization, prime numbers, etc. And when I reached uh, engineering school, my first internship was done with a pen tester team. So that was like a deep dive into the professional world of security. Um, it was like most of the days uh, wearing uh, shorts and t-shirts in the office, uh, hacking stuff. And some of the days with uh, a suit and a tie and going to uh, some uh, some uh, customers to actually see with them how, how we could hide them. So I've been really... Um, hooked into uh, the, the, the field of, uh, of security, big fan of uh, the, the technical aspect, um, computers, how can you design and build secure system and how can you break them on the other hand? And so that was really, really uh, my passion. I started my first job as a pen tester in a, in a consulting firm, uh, smallish, 40%, but very, very uh, great technical level. Here, I, I built a lot of uh, offensive uh, tools. And after, after a while, I've been hired at Apple, where I met Pierre, my uh, co-founder at Screen. And so that's where... Um, the things that I was doing with uh, passion become even stronger. 
surrounded by an amazing uh, team of really, really deep uh, people. And so we turned much more into reverse engineering and attacking systems that were pretty uh, elaborate. And so we spent, uh, I spent five years helping developers build and design better systems. And so that was our, uh, really our time at, uh, at Apple. Once um, this was done, uh, because we decided uh, to automate and to put much more intelligence into what we were doing from a technical standpoint. And so we decided to start a company together uh, to, to build application security in a, in a much simpler way. And so we started Screen. So now I'm curious, it sounds like you came from a lot of kind of the offensive side. And now screen is focused more on the defensive side. What was your kind of motivation to make that change from offense to defense? Yeah, so it was very uh, progressive. I think um, many people are um, attracted by the field of security because of the offensive side of it. It's, it's so fun and sometimes so easy um, to break defenses to break into things and to steal data or to uh, prove that you manage to take over something. And so as I think as a teenager, I love to play, I love games. And so that was really, really appealing to me. And as you grow up, you, you look for different challenges. And one of the challenges that I really discovered while I was at Apple is that, yes, I was still doing offensive security, building, breaking systems, but we were also working hand in hand with developers and helping them, advising them to build a much better software. And that's how we, I discovered that um, building secure systems was actually extremely hard and much harder than I ever thought. And that the tools and the uh, processes and all the methods that were available were far from perfect. And so we uh, understood that uh, the best product you could dream of in the, in the security industry was, was not here. And that many, many things were done with um, ideas that were pretty ancient, that the uh, space of security was still pretty um, secretive. You know, the, the, uh, you won't try my product until you sign an NDA and things like that. And so that's um, how we realized that actually all this uh, culture and this mindset of the, of the old security days that is still present in uh, many places today still exists and is not helping because it not good to, to bring awareness, to bring trust uh, towards a given uh, product or techniques. And so that's one of the things we wanted to change. And so that's how I think I moved from the offensive side into the, the defensive side. But I would also argue that if you want to build a security product, you have to know, uh, at least for the technical uh, aspect of it, how attackers uh, work and how the offensive uh, people think. Otherwise, it, it will be pretty hard to build something, uh, something strong. Yeah, I think you've got a good, a good combination there. And it's funny you mentioned building a security product. Uh, in, in my past career working in big companies, some of the most difficult product teams to influence for security were those that were building security products because they had this mindset or this idea to say, well, we're building a security product. We're, but, but, and we kept saying, well, that doesn't actually mean you're secure. 
that just means you're building a security product. Like you still have to follow the same things, the same best practices of secure coding and threat modeling and, and running, you know, static analysis tools and dynamic tools and, you know, all the things that go into to building a solid security architecture. Just because yeah. it's a security product doesn't give you a pass to say, well, we're, a, we're, we're building a firewall. Well, great. It's going to be an insecure firewall if you don't do the right things. Absolutely. And I think that's a bias of uh, many security products. But as so Pierre and I, as co-founders, we are both security nerds. And so if you, if you do things uh, just with your guts, when you start the company, you will hire people that you know, that you trust, people in your networks who are security experts, right? But the security experts are not the best um, engineers, architects, uh, software, uh, principal engineers, people that are able to uh, forecast uh, technology trends, etc. The, the, the security code is not used to uh, build products that will scale, uh, that will be secure, uh, that will be safe, and that have all those different things into account. And so one of the first things we did at the beginning was say, okay, let's not look for that. And so we hired our first engineer that was not at all a security expert, was excellent engineer. So the, the, the security bits was very, very close uh, from him and he learned very, very quickly. But uh, I, I'm proud to say that, yes, we, we managed to start the, the, the company with non-security experts beside the two founders, okay? And um, I think this is really, really important in the DNA of the company because it helps you build a company that is not super secretive, that doesn't have uh, like the, 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 the former dark security culture. Yeah, and that's you know the same the same principle that we've applied in building security journey is we're a security first company, which I think I would say the same thing about screen, you know, from what I know about about screen and how you operate. And so it's it's great. And you may have this same the same experience, but from time to time we'll have a new customer who will send us a set of questions, security assessment questions to fill out. And they always love it when they get back our answers because they, there's usually no follow-up questions yeah, because yeah. we've built from a security architecture perspective, like we're thinking security first. We are, we're, we're, I understand why they ask a lot of these questions, but it's, it's the perspective of, of saying, well, we've actually built to, to best take care of these things right from the beginning. We built it from the ground up. And so that always blows people as minds, but I know we're not, we're not here to talk about um, building a security product, but we'll, we'll have to have that as a follow-up conversation for the future, because I'd love, I'd love to just, pull that thread for a full hour of talking about, you know, building a security product and what goes into it, but we'll add that to the backlog. So Robert, I know um, you were going to take us into kind of a discussion about the, uh, the report that screen has put together. Yeah. Uh, so JP, uh, that's what we're here for is a report that your company put together. Can you tell us what that report is uh, just so we have that context? Yes, absolutely. So, this report is um, the state of all the vulnerability exploitations that were detected amongst our customers in um, the past year. So maybe I need to give a bit more context about uh, what is this data and where it's coming from. So our product is basically a RASP, right? So we install in our customers' servers and within there, we monitor 
their runtime. And so we are able to, to check each time a dangerous call is performed if this call is actually a vulnerability exploitation or not, right? So we have very little false positives because we use what we call a semantic-based analysis, which means, for instance, to detect a SQL injection, we would parse the SQL payload and check if the user parameters provided by the frameworks are present in that SQL query. If they are, if they are only a string or an integer, it's okay, we know. We don't have um, an attack. But if the user parameters are actual SQL statements, then by definition, we have a SQL injection. And so uh, then in that case, the RASP engine will just report an attack. And so we know that we found the vulnerabilities at this point. So we have similar analysis for um, several class of vulnerabilities. And so we took the data that is in our database and we computed aggregated figures for all that, those kind of vulnerability exploitations. So there is a big difference uh, with um, other reports that you may find. We don't focus on um, potential attacks that we have detected we focus on actual vulnerability exploitations that we have spotted. And so understanding a little bit more about what the report is and, and, and some of the goals, and you were trying to help, if I understand correctly, you're trying to help uh, teams or the purposes to help teams understand some real attacks and, and, and see those results and, and, and help them understand that these are not just theoretical. Sometimes we read a report, we, uh, SQL injection is, is a top or, or some other attack is the top, you know, what does that really mean? But you're actually trying to put uh, some, some reality behind it. Here's what we're seeing. And here's, here are the, the most common things that we're seeing resulting or as a result of some data that we've collected. Absolutely. And so the, the initial reason where, why we dug into that data was to build um, a data extract for the OWASP to help the OWASP build the OWASP top 10 2020 that mm -hmm. may actually be delayed in 2021. Um, and so the, that's how we started to dig into those figures. And so I was uh, uh, reading the extract behind my spreadsheet and I was thinking, oh my God, so many great insights in this data set. Uh, we need, to, uh, we need to, to, to share it more. And so I, I shared with the team. And so uh, uh, that's how the idea of this, uh, of this report was, uh, was born. And obviously, we, we shared the, the data with the, with the OWASP as well. And so, yes, this data is grounded into, into reality because that's not uh, just detecting, yes, we have this trend of attack. It's more so we don't really know the trend of attack. What we know are the actual vulnerabilities that may be present into your, uh, your application. Now, this, rapper, this report is not um, like the perfect source of uh, truth because we don't protect against any kind of vulnerabilities. There are some vulnerabilities that we don't cover yet, for instance. And so you will not find everything into, uh, into this report. But on the uh, class of vulnerabilities that screen is covering, um, we believe that this is a nice insight of which vulnerability is more prevalent than others and uh, which language might have more um, difficulties to be more secure facing one vulnerability than one other. And so all those uh, insights can be really helpful to 
application security teams that can help uh, their um, that can help their engineers in uh, prioritizing into which kind of defense they should put uh, first. So, if we think about this from our audience's perspective, what would you say is what will I take away or what will I get from this report if one of our audience members is sitting here saying, okay, I'm going to invest an hour in reading this report. JB was telling me about it on the, the podcast here. Like, what would you tell them? Like, how would you, how would you entice them to say, here's, a re- here, here's why you should go ahead and spend that hour reading this report? Depends who you are. If you are, um, I don't know, a Gartner strategist, uh, then you might find interesting that uh, vulnerabilities such as uh, SQL injection or cross-site scripting are still prevalent in uh, today's applications. And so that may come as a surprise to some of us because we know that modern frameworks, uh, they have good defenses against cross-site scripting. They have good defenses against SQL injection, but that's uh, still not perfect. Um, So that's uh, one of the things. The other thing that you might find interesting is that we found that we had four times more attacks in uh, the past year than over the previous one. So we had like a a raise in, uh, in attacks. So, Uh, And when I say attacks, I mean vulnerability exploitation, right? It's in the context of this this report. And so we might think that the world is becoming more uh, more and more safer and safer, but uh, it's actually uh, not what this data is showing. So I'm I'm not saying that this data is is worrying, but I I try to think uh, and see how we could explain that. And one way we could explain that is that the world today has more and more software developers than it has one year ago or five years ago, right? The world uh, has a huge demand for software engineers. And so one of the consequences of that is that software engineers training is becoming shorter and shorter. And so we know that historically, the software engineer training does not take into account security that much. And that's expected because uh, they have a very complex job. Security is only one facet of it. Um, And so the shorter you make the uh, developer training, uh, the the less uh, they will spend on security. And so the more likely they have to to, to write bugs that actually have um, security consequences, so-called vulnerabilities. So um, this uh, really makes um, the, the, the world uh, evolving quickly, not in the direction of being more and more secure. And so obviously this may change with new tools, uh, new frameworks, uh, uh, better information around all of that, uh, but that's not what the, the report is showing uh, to date. So I think that's my answer if you are uh, a Gartner analyst, right? Now, my answer, if you are um, a CTO, an application security professional, a CISO, what you may want to look for into this report is how your own company uh, might be vulnerable to some particular threats. So let's assume you are a PHP first company or a Java first company. Then this report will show you for each platform what are the prevalent uh, vulnerabilities. Some of them are surprising. Uh, some of them are not. For instance, we know that uh, Node.js uh, is using a lot the MongoDB uh, database. And so this kind of uh, vulnerabilities are obviously prevalent in the, uh, in the Node.js world. So with that in mind, um, 
and, and let's, let's take, a, I know you give us different views, the, the Gartner view, the, the CTO and so forth. Let's take the application security person. Uh, what was one maybe surprising thing that uh, you learned from analyzing this data that could be helpful to that, that application security person that maybe they need to think about or maybe uh, they hadn't even thought about? Was there maybe one or two things that you found? To me, one thing that was surprising is a prevalence of uh, SQL injections and cross-site scripting uh, exploits. Um, so very, uh, very important uh, proportion of those. Uh, so what we saw is that about 70% of the security events consisted of SQL injections and XSS exploits. So that's a lot and there is a huge prevalence. So probably there should be a focus on um, protecting your applications against SQL injections and cross-site scripting scripting uh, uh, vulnerabilities. So you have many ways to do that. And this report is uh, not sharing that much about it. The recommendations are findable. You can do content security policy. You can ensure that all your applications are using a templating engine. You can use static analysis to ensure that you are not using dangerous functions or review the usage of those functions. You can uh, have some training for the developers to help them understand what they are, sensibilize uh, people for those things during pull requests, etc. That's that's typical. You have similar recommendations for for SQL injections, but the um, that's uh, one takeaway when we are often looking for uh, business logic vulnerabilities and different uh, kind of things like uh, race conditions for instance what we have here uh, shows that we still have a prevalence of those uh, pretty old uh, classes of vulnerabilities because like SQL injection were born like in the early uh, days of the web. Cross-site scripting is a bit more recent, maybe 2005, the first reports on that, and 2010 really, really popular. But um, we can see that those old vulnerabilities are really, really prevalent. So we, we did talk about, we've already kind of mentioned a few of the key takeaways um, just have come up in conversation from the actual report. And I don't want to give away all the answers to, I want people to actually go read the report and, and understand, you know, some of the other things that are in there. Um, so I want to ask, I'm going to skip over kind of the key takeaways that um, we may have, have already discussed. And I want to focus in on a question about all of the data in the report are there any trends that point towards one language or one framework being better from a security perspective? And, you know, the caveat being you're about to enter the world of, you know, <laughs> people that are super passionate about like, wait, JB was saying my language or framework was, you know, I can't believe he said that. So, um, <laughs> but I'm okay. I'm okay. If we offend some people by saying that their, their language or framework might not be as secure as some of the other ones, but is there any, is there anything you took away from that looking at the different yes. languages and frameworks to say one of these is better from a security perspective? Yes, there is. Um, so first of all, I'd like to do a small disclaimer. Again, this data is not, uh, it's a state amongst our customer base. Uh, so it's not the end world and we also have like no report to date for go because our go agent was released pretty recently and we yeah. don't have .NET for instance because .NET is a work in progress so uh, like we don't cover everything Val amongst what we cover um, the findings is that um, consistently applications that are not using frameworks are 
three times more likely to suffer from vulnerabilities than applications that are using frameworks, right? So I don't really want to give a hierarchy of, uh, of frameworks here. And actually, we found that, uh, for instance, in the world of uh, PHP, whether you use a Symfony, uh, Laravel, of, or, or WordPress, you have basically the same likelihood of getting attacks, which is like... Uh, Nine eight uh, percent actually, where, whereas when you are not using uh, a framework, the likelihood goes up to sixty one percent. So you have a huge discrepancy here. And the thing we would recommend, and I don't think that's a big surprise, but uh, we, we can draw a, a conclusion further. The, the thing we want to recommend is that you should use a framework. So uh, uh, make sure that. Whenever you start something, you should use a framework. I think that's uh, pretty grounded today and it's, it, we take it for granted. Now, probably if you are a CISO of a pretty large uh, company, you have some legacy applications uh, at some place or some other. So if some of those applications are not using frameworks, probably you should put them on top of your list and you should have monitoring or protections on top of that. Maybe you should do a, a threat analysis, threat modeling on that, because if they are using some sensitive data, they are likely to have a lot of vulnerabilities. And so they could be, um, they could be a good entry point for, for attackers. So you should highlight them in your attack surface mapping and make sure that you, you, you go and you protect them uh, as much as possible. So that's a great point about uh, use of frameworks and, and making sure you use a framework. But here's a, another question I was just thinking about frameworks is um, even when you use a framework, there are sometimes good ways to use them and not so great ways to use them. In other words, there might be several ways to do the same thing. And it just depends on making sure you pick the right um, approaches and, and so on. Did you, did you analyze uh, that far in terms of, or that detailed in terms of, uh, maybe um, um, correct usages of the framework versus not so so good uses of the framework. Yes. So at uh, Apple, the the philosophy uh, towards API design is um, make so the, the API should uh, make simple things simple mm -hmm. and makes complex things possible. Right. So that's like the the mantra of uh, of API design, and I think that's an amazing good practice, and that's one of the practices that should be. Um, uh, implemented in any API, whether you are doing a web framework, a cryptographic API, or whatever. And so all of the web frameworks, or most of the web frameworks, they have a great API for uh, doing SQL query, for doing uh, HTML rendering, JSON rendering, that are pretty safe if you use them correctly. And that's mm -hmm where the trick is, right? If you right. use them correctly. Some of those APIs are super easy to misuse. In Rails, um, the difference between uh, escaping HTML and not is an equal sign. For instance, um, in Rails, you don't have escaping when uh, you do order by. Uh, so all of these are small caveats that are still weaknesses from the original API that uh, were put in the, in the templating engine or in the ORM. And so each language, each framework has more or less of those caveats. And so you can think of, you can think of um, a framework such as Express in Node, for instance, where the framework is really minimalist. And so it's up to the developer to use their own ORM, to use their own validation library, their own uh, routing library. And so all of that makes it pretty um, 
art for a developer that does not has a great uh, con consciousness of security um, to pick the, 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 the right tool or the tool that is more uh, suitable than others uh, from, a, from a security standpoint. And so when I'm looking at, your, at, at some of the findings that were language specific, one of them is just really jumping out at me on the page. And so like, and I'll just kind of run through them real quick. So like the PHP applications, three, three times more likely. Okay, I get that. Um, thing, you know, primary 70% or SQL injection cross-site scripting, that makes total sense. The 70% of Ruby apps were susceptible to SQL injection attacks. That one seems like an enormous number to me. And is, as yes. somebody who spends a good amount of time in Ruby on Rails, where there's an ORM and there's a framework set up to help defend against SQL injection attacks, that's the one statistic that's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. So can you provide a little more context on that one? Yeah, this one is, uh, is surprising. I agree. And so one of the um, confirmation, may I say, uh, on that is that uh, if you take the hacker one uh, report from 2020, they also ranked uh, SQL injection very high in the, in the vulnerabilities that uh, their hunters are found. So SQL injections are still prevalent in today's world. Yeah. Um, but yes, the, uh, I would not have expected that much of, of a prevalence. Now, for uh, Ruby and Rails applications, that's something that I know especially well because when we started the company, the first agent that I written original, originally was the Ruby one. And so all of our uh, first customers for the first six months, maybe even a year, were Ruby customers. And so I spent a lot of time proofreading um, the vulnerabilities that screen were reporting in uh, Ruby and Rails applications. And so uh, very often I spent actual time with our customers to them, okay, you have this vulnerability, the customer was saying, no, no, it's not possible. I'm using this ORM, look at uh, my coding practices. And so in the end, we were looking together and we were still finding that, yes, this endpoint and this parameter is not sanitized. And so you have several reasons for that. One of them is that, for instance, you always need to, to do something that is a bit strange, right? In Ruby and Rails, if you generate your database with uh, the Ruby uh, generator and the migrations, etc., it's pretty um, uh, compelling to use because it really fits the object model of Rails. If you don't, and if you are using a database that was created by other means, then you, you need at some point to do more uh, cumbersome things to link that uh, existing data schema into your uh, Rails data model. And so that's where you can try to start doing some custom SQL queries. And as soon as you start doing that, things that cannot be easily done in the ORM, uh, then you, you, you start uh, putting yourself at risk. Another thing that we found, analyzing the, um, the stack traces of the vulnerabilities, because like one of the good point of having those findings inside an application is that for each vulnerability that we catch, we have the stack trace. So for Ruby and Rails, we analyzed all of the stack traces. And what we found is that you also have a prevalence of admin interfaces that are allowing um, people to do actual arbitrary SQL injections, right? So one of the hard things in security is prioritization because we all have limited resources. We 
all AppSec teams that I know are outnumbered compared to the number of engineers of software developers that are in the company. And so the key thing um, that you need to do as a, a security practitioner is to prioritize and focus your efforts on the right thing. So I think this kind of data is very helpful in helping you prioritize and understanding what is uh, the context and how um, all of the applications, all of the teams that you have in your company uh, might be more or less likely to put vulnerability in their code. And so I think having a data-driven um, decision model to help a given team implement uh, uh, CI to put more um, runtime protections on your applications just to build your security strategy based on uh, actual hard facts data. JB, thanks for taking the time to share this report with us and, and explain many of the different pieces of the report. And I'm definitely adding to our episode backlog a conversation with JB about building a security product. I'd love but, to join you on that, Chris and Robert, for sure. Yeah, I think there's some definitely some good insights to be drawn there and some fun, uh, some fun things to explore. So yes. thank you very much, JB. Thank you very much, Chris and Robert. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination. <laughs>